Welcome to the fifth episode of On The Record. I'm Jason Tebb, Chief Executive of On The Market, and over the course of this first season of podcasts, I'll be talking to the innovators and leading figures in our sector to discuss their journey in the industry, their views on pop tech, and their opinions on how adopting new technology can benefit every agent. I'm joined today by Peter Ambrose, Managing Director of The Partnership, a multi-award-winning conveyancing business that combines the latest technology with personal service to provide a more responsive and transparent approach to conveyancing. Estate agents and conveyancers need to work closely together, but these relationships are sometimes strained, to say the least. Don't I know it? So I'm looking forward to hearing his views on this and much more besides. So Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed. Absolutely delighted to be here today. And it's a busy time to be speaking to you. I'm surprised you've had time to take breath to speak to me for an hour. Since the end of the stamp duty holiday, everyone was saying it's going to get quieter, it's going to get quieter, but it really hasn't. If anything, the intensity has been rising and rising really for the last year. And good news is it shows no sign of slowing down. Great. Well, that's good news. We'll talk about it a bit more detail a little bit later on. But let's start straight away by perhaps if you'd like to tell me about your background and a really quick summary of what you did before founding the partnership. My background was slightly unconventional when you look at other people that start law firms in that I was in the technology sector, worked both in the US and the Netherlands for many years. And after selling software for about 15, 20 years, decided that really there must be an easy way to earn a living. We started the business back in 2007 uh, with the introduction of home information packs, which obviously flavor of the month at the moment, although people say they're not, but they think they are. Did that for a few years with the whole goal of setting up a law firm. So we started doing conveyancing way back in 2009, which even though it sounds like a long time to me, for most law firms, we're mere teenagers. We started the business. We were one of the first non-lawyer owned law firms in the country. And the goal was always to start with technology and lead with technology. And we find ourselves today with a couple of offices, nearly 100 people. And yeah, it's going OK. Great. And interesting that your background predominantly in technology and then using that experience you've had to build that technology solutions into your current business with all that experience. Why do you think it is that the UK as a whole has been slow to adopt technology and conveyancing? People are just too busy doing the day job. Technology hasn't done terribly well in general in the legal sphere. We see it making inroads in the corporate side of things, the magic circle. But when it comes to private client work, working for individuals, there just really hasn't been the progress in the technology itself. And the fundamental reason for that is there's not enough money in it. Smaller law firms, those doing residential property work, maybe doing wills and probate and so forth, family work, They just don't have the sort of money to throw at the kind of technology solutions that the bigger firms do. So it's tremendously underinvested. And consequently, the software that we see out there in the market today is pretty dire. And the benefits are pretty limited. And I think that if I was a law firm owner who didn't have a technology background, I'd be looking at the case management systems that are out there and saying, well, is this going to do very much for me, really? Or can I just carry on as I've always done? Because fundamentally, the problems that that the traditional software solve are not that big. And I think this has been the issue. As a law firm owner, you look at it and you say, well, what's this problem going to solve? Maybe mail merge my letters 
maybe allow me to have access to my accounts, but really that's about it. So why would you then invest in technology if you didn't see enough benefits coming back from it? It's interesting. And, you know, I know from my experience, you know, spent 20 years or so as an estate agent. And I remember my first few transactions when I first started and then the final ones before I left the, the direct sector to start in this role. And the process was essentially the same. Maybe there was an edge towards or an owing towards automation, but really the essential processes were the same. The milestone challenges were definitely exactly the same as they were. In fact, in some cases, it was more challenging rather than less. And I think that there is an opportunity, as you rightly put, with the right support and with the right financial backing to develop some sort of platform in the future that really does become all-encompassing. I suppose the challenge, though, is that like the estate agency market is made up predominantly of one, two and three branch independents, not big groups. And I suppose the conveyancing market is the same. There's a number of smaller businesses. So getting full adoption is always going to be really hard. And that's the fundamental problem. It is fundamentally a cottage industry. Look at the, the way that the market breaks down. When you've got the market leader having 5% market share, it drops off very, very fast after the top sort of four or five companies that's the fundamental problem. It's not that there isn't the will to change or the will to invest in technology, but making it actually happen is really difficult when you've got typically one or two fee earners in a firm doing property work. If I look around here, we've got one of our offices in Guildford and you've got some large law firms there, some large corporate law firms. And then when you look at their property departments, they might have two or three people working in them. It's just mm. not that important to them. So that when you're looking to introduce technology, given that the bulk of the work is in smaller companies, getting adoption to change and without having any standards mandated is really, really tough. Yeah, it's difficult. There's a lot of chatter at the moment. In fact, even in any market, you know, it's not just because of what's happening at the moment. In any market, there's always chatter about the lead times, the average time from you know, sale agreed to exchange and completion. Give me your take on where we are at the moment with the average transaction time and are lead times improving or not at these sort of busy times? During the craziness of the last couple of years with the significantly higher volumes, we saw transaction times actually shrink a little bit. They got quicker. And there is, there is something a little strange about convincing that when things are busy, people tend to work faster because they have to. What we saw from the beginning of this year, we saw transaction times being the worst that we'd ever seen. Wow. But the good news was, was that as the year went on and it got into April, May, it got faster and faster and faster. And we thought, thank goodness, you know, we've seen these times go behind us now. What we've seen since June is it's got worse and worse. And now here we are all these months later, it's actually slower than it was at the beginning of the year. We're seeing national figures coming out in about 22 weeks. Our figures, our current caseload is running at 17 and a half weeks. Now, we've never seen that before, ever. Typically, uh, as a company, we would always aim for 11 and a half to 12 weeks. That was our standard. It had been hovering around the 14 weeks for a long time. That was what we'd got it down to. We got it down to 14 weeks, having it went up to about 15 or 16. But as I say, what's happened in the last few months is it's got worse and worse. Going forward, my sense is looking historically and, and, and certainly in the recent history is it's probably going to get slower this is what we're seeing there's no reason i don't have a reason for it to get quicker because the problems that we're hitting are not going to be solved soon 
Is that something that has changed markedly in that period? For example, are chains longer? Have you seen an increased fall-through rate? Is there legislation-type challenges, boxes that need ticking? Is it, is it any one thing? That's a really good question. And it's one that I ask my lawyers on a regular basis, you know, what is happening? What is causing this? Because really, it's not good for anyone. The good news, the really good news is that fall-through rates are not increasing. And, and this is, we're hearing this from agents as well as we, we see this in the numbers that we see ourselves. People holding deals together, which is really good news. And that's, that's what we want. What it seems to be the, the overriding factor, there's, there's nothing specific. But what we have seen is if it involves a human, then it's getting slow. And that doesn't matter whether that human works in a mortgage lender. It doesn't matter if they work for a management company or if they work for another law firm. Wherever there are people involved and there is definitely, and this is not anecdotal, this is we, we can prove that when people are working remotely, it is more difficult to communicate with them without a shadow of a doubt. And the biggest problem that we have is, for example, we will call the other side's lawyer to try and get hold of them. And it is very common for them to say, I'm sorry, but they're working remotely and we cannot contact them. And that is a definite trend. We, we have seen that absolutely. And the challenge for that is we see no change for that at all. We've seen no change at all in the way that people are working. And so therefore, I don't envisage that getting any better. As you rightly say, there's always a different reason or nuance on why the lead times push out. But do you think that this is a byproduct of you know, during the pandemic, there was you know, quite a few people sadly laid off from their roles. They you know, moved to maybe from full time to part time or some redundancies or they moved on to other careers. Do you think that the industry as a whole still hasn't necessarily resourced itself up for the volume? Is that part of the challenge? Absolutely. We've always said that the fundamental problem with the speed of transactions yeah. is to do with caseloads. People sometimes put it upon expertise, which I think is a little harsh, but there is an element of truth in that, in that, yes, we've definitely lost people from the industry who have been doing it for years, and the last two years have been very, very difficult. And not surprisingly, a lot of them are saying, well, actually, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. We've certainly seen that. We've certainly seen firms struggling yeah. with caseloads, with higher caseloads, with less experienced people, and that is a problem as well. I don't think that we're going to see a big change to that. I don't want to be doom and gloom. But if you say to people now, is residential property an attractive thing to get into? It's not a resounding yes by any stretch of the imagination. Salaries had gone up hugely. That's what it did do. It did because of the shortage of people, salaries did increase. We're now seeing those are now coming off. And in fact, interestingly, the firms that were paying the high salaries are now struggling financially. It's not a good combination. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, indeed, indeed. And I think, look, from an agent's perspective, when I would agree a deal, I would say, have you got a lawyer? First of all, usually the answer was no. By far and away, the majority said, no, I haven't. I'm, I haven't instructed one yet. And then I'd refer maybe, you know, a, a, a couple of companies for them to choose. It's all about consumer autonomy for them to make that decision. But do you think consumers, the average consumer, do you think they understand the differences between the different types of conveyancing approaches? Because broadly, and we'll come on to this later, there's broadly two sort of ends of the spectrum and maybe something in the middle. But do you think that most consumers understand the differences between different type of conveyancing approaches or is price still that key deciding factor? Price is very important. Uh, there's no getting away from it. All of our work comes on recommendations. So we know that recommendations are very powerful. The challenge that we see, for example, with agent recommendations is why they're being made. 
we know that clients want agents to recommend a good lawyer. And to some extent, they believe them. Yes, a good lawyer is important, but we do see an awful lot of situations whereby clients will go, oh, well, we've been offered a cheaper one by our broker or something like that, and that's fine. Because obviously, as a buyer, they're going to trust their broker. And the problem is, as we see it, is a broker recommendation, although this is changing, and that has been a big change that we've seen, in the past has always been a little bit challenging because brokers have been targeted by the firms that offer certain incentives and so forth. And of course, the broker, unlike the agent, isn't involved on a day-to-day basis with the hurly-burly of the case. So do they understand the difference? We get a lot of snobbishness. We do get people saying, oh, I must have a solicitor. And my argument to that is, yes, because all solicitors are brilliant at conveyancing, aren't they? We do see that. And, um, and occasionally, depending on the price point, they will say, I must have a solicitor. And they must. Sometimes they ask for their CVs. Yeah, and they will say, I need to know how many years they've been doing this. The challenge is, of course, it's a distress purchase. And we're just getting in the way of them buying the house. So actually, you're all the same. You're all terrible. You're all slow. So if I can get a reasonably mid-priced offering, then I'm going to go for that. And because I know it's going to be awful anyway. So what do I care sort of approach. But that said, we have seen a change amongst agents, certainly since the end of the stamp duty holiday, where there's been much more emphasis on educating clients and saying it is important to make the right decision. And that's a definite change. We saw the number of agents referring us definitely increase, which is a brilliant sign. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that, you know, I suppose experience teaches you a few things. But experience when I was managing branches or regions in the end was around choosing a referral partner be it in any professional service not just necessarily conveyancing who you trust who will be on the end of a phone if you need them and it gives you an element of control it gives you the ability to make changes and to overcome hurdles and objections along the way if you can't do that then you're resorting your pipeline to the average whatever the average is these days 30 35 percent of, of sales fall through and you're resorting that to just an average whereas in my experience, as I got more involved in those pipelines and certainly understood the industry better, I would refer to people who I could build up a relationship with because I knew if there was a challenge, you could pick up the phone and giving a, a branch manager or even a, an individual negotiator control of their pipeline is so important. And it, and that's what's worth the money. That 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 is what's worth it in any market. It, it's that ability to build that relationship, I think, isn't it? I think it is. And we do see companies sort of flip-flop between bringing in a progressor or bringing in someone to try and encourage the client to make the choices and so forth. We see companies go back and forth over that. Without a shadow of a doubt, the most successful companies are those that say to their negotiators, your deal, you run it. There's no question about it. There's ownership, there's trust from the applicant, there's trust from the client, and it makes it a whole lot smoother. And I can say with that, hand on heart. I can see the figures. We track our figures very closely. And you can see the different agents and the speed and the performance and the satisfaction rates we get when the negotiator does have more uh, autonomy. No question. And it's the fun part of the job as well. I mean, I did a sort of keynote a few weeks ago at a, a national awards presentation. And in my keynote, I said that booking a viewing and doing the viewing is 1% of the job. And there's still another 99% to go. And actually, some of the, the most enjoyable bits for me, certainly some of the most rewarding bits for me were A, winning instructions, evaluations, but B, it's sales progression. It's understanding and working through that, that, that pipeline to convert it. 
it's building up that relationship with the with the seller and and with the buyer of course the seller's always the, the the client but you have to maintain relationships with both and it was that even through really challenging times managing difficult long chains that was certainly for me was the most rewarding part so i would feel just personally some my own personal view if i was you know going to be a neg in an office somewhere and my pipeline was taken away from me i'd be pretty aggrieved at that i'd want to have that control over it i think i wanted to ask a question about this kind of magic wand scenario. So if you could wave a magic wand and you could employ tomorrow any technology, how do you think you would employ that technology to support the home buying and selling process? And the reason I ask this is because there's a lot of you know organizations, some of them government supported, some of them not, really looking in some depth about how to speed up and to make more transparent the home buying and selling process. But you've got this unending budget you've got big deep pockets and you can roll out something very very quickly you've got a thousand tech developers waiting to start work what do you think you could do to make that process more streamlined it's a really interesting challenge the fundamental problem that we have is that all the data that we need to be able to carry out our jobs is held in an unstructured format And that's the problem. And one of the challenges that we see is people say, oh, I need platforms to move information around more efficiently. That's not going to solve anything. I said to someone the other day, if I want to send some information to someone else, I can do it very quickly within a few milliseconds. and I can do it over email. Um, That's not the problem. We can we can move documents around really easily. I think if I if I had a magic wand, I would capture all of the data that is sitting out there in documents in people's files. Okay, I would scan it all. I'd convert it into data that I could then interpret. I would analyze that information and then combine that with all property information about the, uh, you know, the structure of the property and who owns it and all the stuff that we can get from various different providers today. And I combine the two together so that Mm -hmm. then we would stand a hope of being able to interpret and analyze this data. So you'd have to be digging it out of the, 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 you know, the offices of, of managing agents. You'd have to go around to every law firm in the country. You'd have to go into their file stores. You'd have to scan every document. It's not going to be a quick job. No, I can tell. <laughs> but that's what <laughs> it's, it would be a little time consuming. But um, that, that's what you need to do. You need to convert unstructured yeah. data into structured data. But as a, as a starting point, what I would do is I would give every law firm a scanner. Right. <laughs> and teach them how to use it, right? And teach them how to use it. Right. And teach them how to name files correctly. Yeah. So a scanner and a five-week residential course teaching lawyers how to name documents so that they're readable. Well, there's a great start right <laughs> there. Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to On The Record, the On The Market podcast with me, your host, Jason Tebb, and my guest this week, Peter Ambrose. We've been hearing about Peter's career to date, the conveyancing industry and its use of technology and some of the challenges in getting deals over the line. Moving on from this, we discuss the relationship between estate agents and conveyancers and the differing business models, plus hear about Peter's interests and hobbies outside of work. So, Peter, I was just thinking about questions I'd ask you in this second section, and I actually wrote down, why do agents and conveyancers hate each other so much? <laughs> and I thought I'd, I'd soften that slightly because I don't think that's the case, but that, that's what I wrote down is to remind myself. But I'll start this with a slightly more sort of passed down version. Um, 
Peter, why do conveyances and estate agents have a slightly fractious relationship? And what can we do? And I mean, including me, actually, at portal level, what can we do to help everyone get along much better? I think if I can say at this point, there's a lot of talk at the moment about greater collaboration and so forth. I think that's for the birds in the nicest possible way. And anyone that suggests that doesn't work in this industry today. If you're an agent and you're listening to this and and you have someone preaching at you saying, you know what you really need to do, Mr. Agent? You need to collaborate with your solicitor. And Mr. Solicitor, you need to collaborate with your agent. That's nonsense. Okay, let's park that for the moment. I think what we have to do is we have to recognise that different people have got different issues. And for an agent, their number one issue is they've got their client beating down their door saying, why haven't you sold my house yet? And for the lawyer... You've got them sitting there going, well, if we cut any corners on this, we know that we're going to end up in the suit because then our client who loves us right now, six months later, is going to turn around and say, well, actually, I know I loved you and all that right now, but I'm going to sue you because I've got a leaky tap that you didn't spot. That's a real example, by the way, just in case you wondered. I can imagine. And I think we have to recognize the different responsibilities. We do a lot of training with agents. And the first thing I always start out with is if clients don't like you, they're going to come and throw rocks through your window. With us, they're going to sue us. Agents have to take a step back and say, look, you know what? The lawyer has got everyone on his case. And that's not just the client. For the agent, they're quite fortunate. They've probably just got the client on their case. But with the lawyer, they've got the client, they've got the broker, they've got the lender, they've got the insurer. And I'm not making excuses here. I'm just explaining. There's far more pressures on lawyers, basically, not to mess up. We always say, if you think about a lawyer having to do a conveyancing case, think of it as doing the exam where you've got to get 100%. And you have to get 100% on every one of those. And the problem is, because of the way that the market has turned out, you will then be talking with lawyers who are typically running about 100 cases. I did a questionnaire a few months ago, and I was, what was a reasonable number of cases? And everyone came back somewhere in the region between 80 and 100. Now, if you compare that with the number of cases that an agent will have, I can say, unless they're doing terribly well, 80 to 100 cases is not really in their remit. And that is the problem, is the economics of the market mean that the lawyer has probably got in the region of maybe 10 times the number of cases that an agent has. So invariably, the agent is having more time to have more grief thrown at him which the lawyer doesn't have. And the reason why it's fractious is because that is the conflict. The lawyer has many more cases to deal with, with much more pressure on them from third parties. It's not just the work, it's the accountability. And so if we're looking about how we can address that, I think, and this has been said over and over again, it's getting a better understanding of not necessarily the process, but the problems that can arise. I remember many years ago, an agent getting extremely cross with me because we had to report an allowance to the lender. Right. And he said to us, and he, he was very cross. He was a very, very cross agent. And he said, that's outrageous. And what was interesting was they said, you should never have reported that to the lender. Wow. And I said, but we had to. And he reported to his director and she got cross with me as well. You should never have reported that to the lender. And I said, but we had to. And they couldn't accept that. They couldn't accept that answer. And I think one one of the pieces of advice we always say to agents we work with, if we're telling you something, it's not just a sob. We're not trying to blag it. We're not trying to fob you off, although some lawyers do, of course. But as a rule, most lawyers will, where they can, be very straightforward and be very honest with it. And you have to stop, take a breath and go, 
yeah, that's a nuisance. Okay, they wouldn't be telling me this if they didn't want to do it. Because there is this myth amongst agents, and it is a myth, where it says that the lawyers get paid whether the deal goes through or not, therefore they don't care. Mm. Trust me, we want these deals through as much as anyone. And the vast majority of people do not get paid whatever the outcome. Mm. And there is a misunderstanding with that. And this feeling of, oh, the lawyers are just going to go, oh, you know what, if it goes through, it goes through. Now, that's not saying that doesn't happen sometimes. But I do think that they need to appreciate that lawyers want these deals as much as, as you do as an agent, but much the same reasons that you do, because frankly, you want these people off your case. Yeah. Look, you've highlighted something that I think hopefully technology could help with in the future as well. And that is just an understanding of that process. So I look at a typical CRM software system and it's got a button to book the viewing. It's got a button to make the offer. It's got a button to accept the offer. Then you raise the memo of sale. And then there's usually sort of 10, 11 milestones. I refer them to as I'm sure others refer to them as something different. And in those milestones, it says, survey books, survey done, <laughs> inquiries raised, inquiries answered, right? And and then and it's like when inquiries have been raised and inquiries answered is just two milestones with just dates in. And if more agents understood, as I do now, I didn't know back then, I just thought, oh, this, you know, you send off a letter. If three days later, you get a letter back and it's all done. If more agents, both the younger people coming into the industry and maybe a, a refresher to the older generation too, understood how complex even that inquiry process is, then maybe that might alleviate and maybe rectify some of that natural sort of tension between the two parties. I get everyone wants it done yesterday. You know, everyone does. The clients usually do as well. Not in all cases, but some cases, in most cases they do. But it's that understanding of it's not just a milestone to tick into a, a box on your CRM. There's so many things that have to happen. And that's the key. They have to happen before you can report to your client. I think one of the, the biggest misunderstandings between agents and lawyers is where the delays are. So, for example, we've got everyone saying, you know, the magic bullet to all of this is upfront information. Now, mm -hmm. obviously, there's nothing wrong with upfront information. That's fine. But it doesn't solve a huge problem. People think it does, but it doesn't. It provides a little bit of information. But what happens is it's not until the, the, the data is actually analyzed and then the questions are raised that the real issues begin. So what happens is that people look to blame certain elements of the process, but fundamentally, it's that middle bit. And I call it the black hole of conveyancing. It's the bit in the middle where everyone's sitting there going, do you know what's going on? No, I don't know. All I know is, yes, they've ordered the searches, and I think they're back, and I think they've got a mortgage offer. But that's the easy bit. So what I would say to agents is be very skeptical. If anyone comes to you with a solution that says, you know what, I've got this amazing solution, I can tell you when the searches are back. You can say, well, that's great and all that, but that really is not worth a hill of beans because the challenge is that how are you going to apply the questions that the buyer needs to ask to this information they've been provided? And if you've got someone that doesn't really know what they're doing or is, is having to follow a, a certain route, you're going to end up with these 50, 60, 70 inquiries of which the seller's going to say, well, I don't know the answer to. And the buyer's going to say, well, I'm not going to do anything until you give me the answer. And what I urge, and this is a hobby horse of mine, I'll be frank with you, I urge agents to say, show me what's going on in this time. Because at least, as you say, Jason, you can get the scope of what's going on. And this stuff is tricky. Quite often, people will say, oh, it's a tick box exercise. And I always say, I really wish it was, because it would make all our lives so much simpler. But you mentioned earlier that is it more complexity? Are there more issues? Absolutely, there are. 
And the problem that, and the way that that manifests itself is that as a buyer, we're sitting there saying, well, we've got more compliance to adhere to. And how do we adhere to that? We ask more questions. We've done studies of how many inquiries we raise, and we've seen ours increase. It's not a huge amount from an average of 23, but an average to 25 now. That's just in the last year or so. So it is increasing. And the reason why it's increasing is not because, uh, and a lot of people will say, oh, it's unnecessary, or why are you doing this? It's because you haven't applied it to the right property, or you're not asking the right questions. Every time there's a problem, every time there's an issue, bang. In goes that extra inquiry. Ah, oh, we've seen this problem before. We got called out before. So the next time we have to raise inquiries, we're going to include that extra one. It's only going to grow as there's more claims. It's just a fact of life. And that's the bit, of course, the most opaque bit, the whole, whole process. And as the compliance criteria, there's more compliance required. There's more potentially legislative changes required. The process gets longer rather than shorter. With that in mind, do you think we'll ever get to the stage in the UK where a buyer can click a button, you know, click to buy a property? Do you think we'll ever be there? Realistically, no, Um, because I think there's too many variables. If we followed the Australian model, which is not as brilliant as people think it is, but it's still better than what we've got, at least it reduces the instance of chains. You know, we see this in the States, we see that in, in Australia. And, and the problem that we've got is chains. And, and it's funny because everyone goes, oh, I blame the chain. That's the problem. Well, of course, the chain, all it does is exacerbates the individual problems. People seem to think that there's the chain itself has problems. Well, that's nonsense. And as an agent, you know that. But it's dead easy to blame it. I think you can definitely get it quicker. And there's only one solution to that. There is only one solution, and that is technology. There's no question. And those people who think that technology won't solve this problem. It's Canute trying to hold back the waves. It really is. The problem that we've got right now is most of the technology that people are actually using is to solve the simple bits. If you want to see an example of this, why was it that two years ago, people switched from getting people to come into their office, clients to come into their office to do ID manually? The only reason they switched to electronic ID was because their clients weren't allowed to. So if ever there was a case for a burning platform, that was it. We were sitting there going, right, so I can't ID my clients because they can't come into the office. Therefore, I can't do the work. Right. What's the solution? Technology. And I think what we need is we need more burning platforms. The good news is we do have a burning platform in our midst. And this is what we alluded to earlier, which is the shortage of experienced people. And that is the new burning platform, which is, right, I haven't got enough people. I can either not do the work or I can use technology to replace those people. But we need to get to that point now. But I think we are getting to that. When I look at technology solutions, I've said this before on this podcast, that quite often when I look at the you know hundreds, maybe even to thousands of potential prop tech, as it's called, solutions, many of them, in my opinion, try and solve a problem that doesn't exist. And it's only when a problem really exists and exists in perpetuity can there be a platform that really does solve and make it easier, quicker, more effective. It's not always about cost savings, definitely not. It's about delivery, particularly in this part of the business where I think you're absolutely right. You know, we all are shared in our aims that we want to do the best for our client and end of that. That's why as an agent, the client used to pay me. That's why the client would pay your team. And we all want that to happen. And we just need to all work probably together to find those technological solutions, which people can share which does open up those channels and we can get to a point where people understand the enormity of what's happening in that particular case 
and then at least understanding it at the very least helps people deal with it I think I know you work very hard and you probably don't get much time off but when you do take time off on your weekends when you're not working what are your hobbies what are you passionate about what are your interests I'm very passionate about my uh, about my football right sadly the team I follow is is one of the more controversial ones which is disappointing go on which team it's Watford. Oh, I'm terribly, terribly sorry to hear that. <laughs> it's, I, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a state of flux. I mean, we talk about people changing offices a lot at the moment. It's very trendy. But I tell you, we've had 19 managers in 10 years. And, I, and I'm, I've been a lifelong supporter. And I'm now starting to lose the faith. I really am. And you sit there and you turn up and you think, this is not good. And it, it, we've got the current, our current manager and he'll be gone by Christmas. We know this. It's a, it's it's a it's a deeply existential problem that I have. <laughs> do you go to many games, or do you do you watch from the armchair? I do, I do too many. I go to too many, and every time you go, we're like, this is just really sad. But I know they're going to sack him in the morning. It, it, it's it's dreadful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they got that particular chant is on like every week or every other week, probably. Yeah. <laughs> it is. I went to a game last week, and the other side, the opposition team, was were, uh, the, the crowd were shouting, you know, you're getting sacked in the morning. And then our side responded, yes, he's getting sacked in the morning. We're even singing out about our own manager. It's absolutely, it's not a, it's not a, a fun experience in general. No, <laughs> no. no well, you say it's not fun in general, but, you know, I, I've spoken to many people on, on these types of uh, platforms and many others too. And it, it, is, it is something that through thick and thin, you know, even though it causes stress and worry and anxiety, you'll still go, you'll still watch it for that promise that something will change, right? I've just actually, funnily enough, just before I came on this, I just got an invite to uh, to go and see Watford play away at Hull. I'm tempted. <laughs> and um, apart from your footy, which is probably a source of weekly frustration, but apart from your footy, what else do you like to do? Writing is my number one thing. I absolutely adore it. I do write for a number of different publications. But um, no, my latest hobby that I started about, a, uh, about nine months ago is learning Italian. Wow, okay, okay. And it turns out, who knew, it's really difficult. <laughs> <laughs> who knew i thought give it six months <laughs> no problem turns out it takes years <laughs> years yes it's not just listen to this audio book and then off you go talking about fiscal policy in italian yeah if you're thinking just any to any listeners if you're thinking of learning italian right be prepared for the long haul <laughs> but and and, and is, is that the reason behind your um your your frustration with Italian? You're frustrated a lot in your spare time, aren't you? But the reason why very tiring. your frustra- frustration with Italian is that because you have particular affinity for Italy? You go there; it's a place you like to visit. I have to say, the sophistication of the country and their lifestyle is fantastic, and I love going there. I go there a lot. The goal at some point is to move there. I would love to move there. It's a brilliantly sophisticated way of life, and that's the goal. Um, so, what we thought was to say, right, at some point we'll move there. So I thought I'd get the prep in early. So it's, it's going to probably at least be another 10 years by the looks of it. But um, hopefully sooner than that. Hopefully sooner than that. But yeah, that is, that is the plan. Because I just think if it's Italian, it's cool, basically. A lot to be said for that. Maybe in a decade when you've learned language, you'll be able to go. Who knows? We're coming to the end of our time. But I'm going to end with this question, which I was asked at the tail end of a podcast I was on recently. And so I'm going to steal it if, they, if the person doesn't mind. And I'm going to ask very simply, what advice would you give to your younger self? Take more risks more, more quickly. Mm. Don't leave it so long. I wanted to do something by myself for many, many years. And I had a family, I had three children. I had a lot of responsibility. If I look back now, 
I wish I would have taken more risks when I was younger. It took me to have all these responsibilities before I started taking these risks. But and I would say to anyone, don't talk about doing something, do it. Great advice. Thank you. We're running out of time, but Peter, it's been great to chat. We're going to add the links to your business, the partnership in our show notes and on our social channels if any of our listeners would like to find out more. Don't forget you can keep up to date with our next episodes by following us at OnTheMarket.com on Twitter. You can follow us on all other social channels too, LinkedIn and Instagram, or search for On The Record in your podcast app and hit that follow button. But just remains for me to say a big thank you to Peter Ambrose. Thank you, Peter. Great to chat. Thanks very much indeed. It was brilliant.